Uh, If you have a Bible, you might want to turn to John 11. If you have a phone, you can point it at the screen and it will take you there. Uh, John chapter 11. Uh, John presents Jesus as God in the flesh. Jesus speaks and teaches like one who has come from God, and he performs beautiful and miraculous signs to show that God the Father is working through him. Uh, None of those signs was quite as spectacular or as wholesome and good as uh, the one we saw last week, raising Lazarus from the dead. Four days earlier, he'd been laid to rest. Uh, Jesus did not hurry to help, but waited so that God's glory and Jesus' mission would be all the more clear. What has Jesus really come to achieve? This is what we're getting to in John. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. So let's read uh, John chapter 11 from verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. 
It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Uh, We finish our reading there. Uh, This is God's word. Um, Whose side are you on? Have you ever been asked that? Whose side are you on? Some debate or division has opened up, but it's complicated. Passions are running high. Hand gestures are flying, and the temperature of the words is rising. You're maybe not sure what you think. What you'd really like to do is just kind of diffuse the situation or walk away. But the question comes, whose side are you on? Sometimes it doesn't really matter whose side you're on. You might be at a sports match. You know, you support the home team or you support the away team. It doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of life, does it? As long as you're sitting in the right part of the ground, at least. Uh, Surrounded by like-minded folks. Uh, Unless, of course, you're the ref. Now, you don't want to take a side if you're the ref. Um, Sometimes, of course, it matters a great deal whose side you're on. We would want to be on the side of law enforcement over, you know, organized crime or something. We'd want to be on the side of a country fighting for freedom Uh, uh, against one making war for tyranny and oppression. We'd want to be on the side of truth and justice and compassion. Sometimes it matters a great deal whose side you're on. Uh, But never more does it matter than when that question comes to us about Jesus. When it comes to Jesus, whose side are you on? Temperature is rising in John's gospel, and we're seeing uh, more and more clearly, uh, first of all today, that Rejecting Jesus is siding with death. Rejecting Jesus is siding with death. So yet again in his gospel, John shows us two opposite reactions to Jesus, two choices, two paths, and we either follow one or the other. And first he shows us the path away from Jesus. So look back to chapter 11, verse 45. We'll pick up the story. So verse 45, many mourners with Mary and Martha, saw four-day dead Lazarus walk out of his own tomb at a single command from Jesus, and they put their faith in Jesus as a result. And, uh, and you would, wouldn't you? I mean, raising Lazarus is not just impressive, it's impossible. Uh, and it's not just impossible, it's wonderful. Tears uh, turn to laughter, sorrow to joy, death to life. Uh, this man, Jesus, is doing exactly the things that we need giving sight to the blind, giving welcome to the outcast, giving life to the dead. It's wonderful. And so they trusted him. Uh, They put their trust in him. But back at Pharisee headquarters, home of the religious elite, the most powerful men in the nation, they're taking a different view of all of this light and life and love. Uh, Verse 47, they call an emergency meeting because of all these miraculous signs. I mean, something must be done about all the good that Jesus is doing. Verse 48, if he goes on, then everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come, they say, and take away both our temple and our nation. What's their worry? Uh, That people will follow Jesus as the Messiah, and there will be a revolt, and the result will be a Roman crackdown and a change of management at the Sanhedrin level. They will be out. 
Now, Jesus has admitted to being the Messiah in John's gospel, but he has always poured cold water on any attempt to make him the mascot of a revolution. Ironically, everything the Pharisees are worried about is going to happen 30 or or so years later, and it's going to have nothing to do with Jesus. But they're worried here and now for their own power and position. Uh, They want to keep their role. They want to stay in their job. So verses 49 to 50, the high priest insults them for being so slow to realize what must be done. Jesus must die. That's the only way to guarantee their power and their position put Jesus to death. Verse 53, so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Now just think about that. Everywhere that Jesus goes, he makes people's lives better. Everywhere he goes, uh, the, the kingdom of God kind of breaks out uh, from, from beneath a kind of uh, shell of, of dullness of this world. It, it breaks out in light and life. The, the lame walk, the blind see, the dead rise. Where Jesus goes, life abounds. Goodness and joy follow in his wake. Uh, he's like a beacon of light moving around a dark world. But these political clergymen want to snuff him out. Um, they want to kill him. Because rejecting Jesus is siding with death. Bad enough to side with blindness over sight. Remember they threw the blind man out? Or the, the ex-blind man? They, they excommunicated him. But here they side with death over life. They side with darkness over light. Verse 57, is it 57? Where it says they plotted. No, it's verse 53, isn't it? Uh, They plotted. It's a better translation might be resolved. They resolved to take his life. They made up their minds. They shook hands on it and they set off to do it. They're trying to get the job done. In verse 57, they've given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. And for some reason, that just reminds me of, um, I shouldn't even, you'll not, you'll not probably get this, General Woundwort and the secret police of Ephrafa in uh, Watership Down. You know, anything out of the ordinary must be reported. Uh, just think about, um, that's a very specific reference. <laughs> uh, think about, um, you know, um, secret police and tyranny and fear and, uh, and lack of freedom. That's, that's the idea here. There's a real kind of crackdown in, uh, from the Sanhedrin. And look at the bizarre place they get to on this path away from Jesus. Look where the path away from Jesus leads. Look at 12 verse 9. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Yeah, I mean, you'd want to see that. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. So now it's not just one man dying for the nation, now it's two. Lazarus miraculously walked out of his tomb, and now the Pharisees want to put him back in there. More death, more misery, more pain, all for, all for power and position, for status and status quo. Rejecting Jesus is siding with death. Now that's less obvious today um, because we're so far removed from physical encounters with Jesus and the direct kind of politics involved. But people today still reject Jesus because they want to keep their lives the way they are, under their own control, uh, just preserving uh, the status quo. You know, I've known people who found Jesus very much believable, uh, even compelling, but when it came to the bit, when it came to the choice, 
They chose to keep life the way it was and not to follow him. Uh, They didn't want to change things about their relationships or their time or their drinking or whatever it it was for them. They didn't want to obey Jesus. One was even uh, genuinely concerned that starting to follow Jesus would take the competitive edge out of his sport because he desperately wanted to win. He was very, very sporty, uh, just loved all sport, loved watching, loved participating. He was mad about it. And he thought that desperately wanting to win wasn't really very Christian. Uh, and that might sound, sound a bit funny, a bit weird, but it mattered to him and it put him off and he wanted to keep the status quo and that's what he chose. What about, uh, what about you? What about the ones you know? Do they want to keep the status quo? The Pharisees show us the ultimate reality, the, the end point of that path away from Jesus. Rejecting Jesus is siding with death. Although in a strange con- uh, contrast, I don't know if I've, I've lost, uh, go on, yep. The strange contrast, worshiping Jesus is trusting his death. Worshiping Jesus is trusting his death. So remember John's showing us two reactions to Jesus two choices, two paths. We either follow one or the other. Um, First, he showed us this path away from Jesus and where that leads. It chooses death and darkness. And now he shows us the path uh, of light and life, the path of following and worshiping Jesus, not the path of murdering him, but worshiping him. And the strange thing is that on this path, Jesus still dies. On this path of light and life, Jesus still dies. Jesus didn't come to be a shining example, to tell us to be good, to be kind, to make wise choices, and any of those other things you might hear in a school assembly these days, uh, just just kind of, you know, keep going, uh, be better. Uh, He came to die. Why? Well, in in a heavy uh, dollop of irony, the high priest has the answer and uh, was talking more sense than I think he knew. So let's, uh, let's pick up his little bit from verse 49. Uh, verse 49, one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up, <clears throat> you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only, I think this is John's side note now, not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. John loves irony in his gospel. He loves a good contrast. Here's a great big dollop of irony. The high priest makes his political decision out of of jealousy and envy and and self-service. He doesn't really understand even what he's doing, but he says that, uh, that Jesus will die for the sake of the nation. And he's, he's right. Jesus will die for the sake of the nation, and not only for them, not only for the Jews, but for the children of God scattered around the world and throughout history for what Jesus called in chapter 10, the sheep who are not of this Jewish sheep pen. And, and that includes us sitting uh, shivering here today under the sound of this same gospel. It's so cold. <laughs> so cold. Uh, so the high priest is thinking of a, a stand-in and a trade-off, one man who's going to die so that the nation lives on, but John is thinking of the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, uh, the one who dies that we might live, 
brought together as one, children of God, the church of Jesus. So on this path of worship, Jesus still dies. Jesus must die to give life to the people that he'll gather into his church. So worshiping Jesus is trusting his death. And we see a picture of this in chapter 12, don't we? Martha and Lazarus and Mary hold this dinner in Jesus' honor. They honor him. He's done a great thing for them, raising Lazarus from the dead. He will yet do a greater thing at much greater cost as he goes to death for them and for us. Uh, and they honor him here anyway, uh, perhaps none so, uh, more so than Mary. She takes this fortune's worth of perfume and pours it on his feet and wipes his feet with her hair. I mean, feet are gross, aren't they? I mean, in a COVID world, maybe it's just me, but in a COVID, even in a COVID world, I would shake your hand before I would touch your feet. Uh, just, it's not, it's not nice. And feet in a hot and dusty, sandal-wearing, sweating kind of society where herds and flocks are doing their business on the road and you're stepping around that. I mean, it's probably not great, is it? It's probably not nice. But Jesus, uh, Mary bathes Jesus' feet in this perfume and cleans them down with her own hair in a culture where letting your hair down was frowned upon at best. Mary spends a fortune because to her, Jesus is worth the expense. Mary uses her own hair despite the lowliness of that because to her, Jesus is worth that devotion. In verse 3, the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume and the scent of worship. It's a beautiful scene. It's another vision of the kingdom of God kind of breaking out in that place with generosity and humility and worship shining out in a dark setting. Unfortunately, at this time, there are no Pharisees around to ruin the moment. Uh, although one of Jesus' own disciples steps in and does that, doesn't he? Verse 4, one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray Jesus, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now, cards on the table, I sympathize with Judas's point. Uh, I, have a, I have a problem with expensive purchases when the same money would go much further in other ways. So, for example, back in March, a Dublin restaurant started selling a limited number of sandwiches with a very special Japanese beef. Uh, I forget the name, it was a Wagyu beef or something. Now, each sandwich, and it's a sandwich, each sandwich sold for 90 euro, and they sold out in days. Uh, 90 euro for a sandwich. And the Judas in me is thinking, do you know how many spice bags you can get for 90 euro? I mean, you get to enjoy that sandwich once, but you, I mean, it's okay, a spice bag is not a Wagyu beef, but you could enjoy it just time and again. It could go much further. It would keep you going for an amount of time I'm not willing to specify. <laughs> oh, last time we were in Port Stewart, another example, uh, we saw a, a purple 4x4 Lamborghini. You think, I didn't even know Lamborghini made 4x4s, uh, but they do, and it's regularly parked up on the seafront, the, the, the road along the, the front, uh, along the sea, uh, where all the shops are and everything. And let's be honest, it wasn't used, it wasn't bought to be used up the farm, was it? Uh, and a friend of ours up there told us, I don't know how he found this out, but he said the annual service, the annual service for that car costs 12,000 pounds sterling. What's that, 14,000 euro or something? Isn't that mad? I mean, I hope they clean it for that money. You would want to be hoovering the crumbs out of it for 12,000 pounds. 
I mean, you could buy another, cost, another car for the cost of that service, not a Lamborghini, granted, but you know, you could make me a billionaire and I still couldn't throw money at something so ridiculous. Uh, so I sympathize a little bit with Judas here, but, but Jesus goes on and John goes on to explain that Judas is wrong and Mary is right. Judas is wrong, verse 6, because he doesn't actually care about helping the poor. He's got his hand in the purse, skimming money for himself. So he would love it if a year's wages dropped into that bag. He seems to be the treasurer for the group. He's maybe managing uh, donations and gifts that provide for their needs and help them to meet the, the needs of other people they encounter. And Judas has his own take on what it means to lift the offering. Uh, Judas is wrong and Mary is right because Jesus is worth it. Um, he is worth the expense of this act of worship. See, Judas says, what, what Judas is saying is Jesus is not worth this costly devotion. Mary spends all this fantastic perfume on Jesus, stuff that apparently came from India, cost a fortune. She loves Jesus. She's so thankful to him, so devoted to him, and she shows it. Judas He's there with Jesus every day, watching, listening. He's got all the evidence. He's got the front row seat. He's seen everything that Jesus has done. And his ego still says, Jesus is not worth it. He's not worth my costly devotion. But as Jesus says in verse 7, this isn't just a straightforward act of worship, but another pointer to the death that he must die. Verse 7, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Uh, I, that sounds terribly arrogant, doesn't it? And it would be if you or I said it. But I think the idea here is that there will always be people in need of help, and we ought to help them. But in this moment, Jesus is there with them, and he would not always be there. So it was entirely right to focus on him in this moment. Anyway, as Jesus says in verse 7, this is not just a straightforward act of worship, but another pointer to the death he must die. We can't really say, I don't think, whether Mary herself intended this anointing to be a, a prediction or a dramatization of Jesus' burial. I don't think, there's, I don't think we can say for sure that Mary or, or anyone else really understood in advance that Jesus had to die, although he did speak about it with his disciples. I think she meant this to be an act of of costly and humble devotion. But like the high priest, she's probably saying a little more here than she understood. Uh, the high priest said Jesus had to die for the nation. He didn't know how right he was. Mary worshipped here in a way that looked like a funeral tradition, and she didn't know how right she was. And in the culture of the day, uh, it was not inappropriate to, uh, to spend lavish sums at a funeral, including the cost of perfumes designed to stifle uh, the smell of decay. Perhaps this perfume was almost spent on Lazarus until he walked out of his tomb. Uh, here's Mary lavishly pouring perfume on Jesus while he's still alive. But Jesus knew how appropriate it was to worship him in a way that echoed a funeral. And that's the point, that worshiping Jesus is trusting his death. Jesus had to die because we had to be saved from death. The death of our, uh, our bodies and the sting of death, the, the judgment and justice of God against our sin. We need to be saved from that. We need to worship Jesus because he stepped in, as the high priest said, dying in our place that we might live. 
you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We believe in Jesus, in who he is, in God from God. We believe in what he came to do, dying in our place, uh, coming under the punishment of God uh, that would otherwise fall on us. And we believe that it worked, that he succeeded, that Jesus did everything that was needed for us to be saved, for the sting of death to be removed, for life and love and light to triumph and to carry us with them. Worshiping Jesus is trusting his death. And so finally, and uh, I promise briefly, because I don't know how much longer we can stay in this room, uh, finally, uh, give yourself to the giver of life. Uh, Give yourself to the giver of life. Put a little bit of work in, haven't we, to understand this passage, to spot the contrasts between the different characters, to see how they translate to today. But let's not miss the beauty of what Martha and Mary do for Jesus. Martha serving this meal in Jesus' honor, and of course Mary with this perfume and the display of exactly what Jesus was worth to her. So let me ask, what is Jesus worth to you? What would you give to him in worship? He calls for nothing less than our whole lives and our whole selves as living sacrifices, walking, talking gifts to him. He deserves that devotion. If we can't see that, then we're looking at him as Judas did and not as Mary did. She saw at least a savior who gave her her brother back. Uh, We we need to see a savior who has given us our lives back. Life in in the midst of the death that we chose away from God. Life worth living right now, a life knowing God, life being loved by God, and life that stretches beyond physical death or beyond the Lord's return uh, into eternity. See, we're not the ones making costly sacrifices. He went to the cross for us so that he could give us everything. We get, we get everything. For sure there's a cost to following Jesus, and he advises us to count it carefully, to weigh it up, but nothing could outweigh what he gives to us, forgiveness and life and hope and welcome and love and a father and a friend and a future, giving us himself. Give yourself to the giver of life. Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Do you, do you smell like worship? Um, do those around you catch a whiff of worship from you? Can it be heard in the way you speak? Can it be seen in your self-control? Can it be detected in your diary? Can it be spotted on your bank statements? Does it run through your relationships, your work life, your politics, your theology? Does it come out in your conversation with other believers and those uh, with whom you would love to see turn and trust in Jesus too? Does it show up in the way you serve him? Does it turn up in the way you treat his people? Does, uh, Does it flow out when you pray? Does it draw you to read his book? Do you smell like worship? Follow Jesus by giving yourself to the giver. We're coming to the point in John's gospel when Jesus will give himself to fulfill his mission for God's glory and our good. Will we side with him? Uh, The alternative is worse than it looks. The alternative is siding with death. Uh, 
ultimately siding with death. No, let's, let's worship and follow him, trusting his death to save us, giving our lives to the giver of life. And I think we better pray for his help, don't you? Should we pray? And then we'll sing. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he's called us from the dominion of darkness into his kingdom of light. Would you help us to look to his death, to trust in it, to follow him and to devote our whole lives to him because he is worthy. We ask in his name and for your glory and for our good. Amen.